as we continue through this series on ancient cliff notes through these books of the Old Testament, we're going to take a wide-angle lens look at the book of Job. And I say it's a wide-angle lens because it's 42 chapters long. The book is 42 chapters long. And there's no way I could possibly do justice to all of it in one sermon. Okay? There is no possible way that I, in one sermon, am going to be able to make sense of this incredibly complicated book of the Bible for you today. Uh, people have dedicated thousands and thousands of hours of studying to do that. People have dedicated thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of commentaries to do that. Don and I have been like reading through a lot of them, so we, we know there's a lot written out there. And I'll say this to you, I've read tons of them. They're all different. And there's not been one that I've read that by the end of it, I've been like, okay, Job is sorted out now. This thing is totally figured out. This book is very, very, very complicated. So show me, please show me that same grace that I have had to show all of the commentators and the people who've studied. Uh, maybe there'll be things that you may not completely connect with, but there's a reason that we're going to do it the way that we're going to do it today. Um, and again, every view of this is a little bit different. So just a lot of approaches you could take to this book. So my goal today is, my goal is to bring this to life as best as we possibly can. And I want us to try to put ourselves in the center of this book and try to understand why would something like this even be written? And much less beyond that, why would this be put in the Bible? Why would this make it to the Bible? Why would it be there? And also at least point out a few things that we could learn from this very, very ancient wisdom literature that is all about suffering and about pain, and about things that we do not understand. Now, before we dive in, there are about three things throughout the sermon that I'm going to explain that make the book of Job so complicated to study, which is why we're trying to do this. We're trying to simplify things that most people think are very complicated, and it's easy to just avoid them. But there's three particular things that we're going to go through that make it very hard to study. But the first, uh, the first one is this. The, the majority of the confusion typically surrounding the book of Job centers on genre, okay? So in the Old Testament, there is definitely different genres to the Bible. There's law. We begin with the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are rules. These are laws. Then uh, another section is the history section. And the history section of the Bible, of course, is like, well, this is what happened, and we're just telling you what happened. Then there's a wisdom or poetry section of the Bible, which is kind of a collection of, um, of poetry, of poems, of, uh, of wisdom, literature, of ideas as to like, hey, how do we do life, and how do we apply this to our lives to live the best kind of life? we possibly can. And then, of course, there's the books of the prophets, okay? Um, but what, but the, what the problem is, what makes Job so incredibly unique is Job is an actual historical account of a person who literally actually lived, but it is written with so much symbolism and so much poetry in such a poetic form that they actually categorize it as wisdom literature or as poetry, but the problem with that is people typically take that to two very unhealthy extremes, right? Because you have history and you have poetry kind of blended together. So what people do is the first they think this, and this is wrong, but they think, oh, Job is a poem, so that means the whole thing is fictional. The guy's just made up. But this is completely false. Historically, it's false. The person of Job is referenced in the book of Ezekiel right alongside of the person of Daniel, the person um, of Noah. Uh, he's mentioned in other literature. He's mentioned in the Quran. 
He's mentioned her in, in non-religious literature. He's a historical person who lived. Um, he's, he was referenced in the New Testament by James, which we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes. So the person of Job historically existed. Almost undoubtedly, the man existed. And unanimously, everything that's been written about him across all literature is the story of a man who lost everything. So you don't erase history just because somebody wrote a poem about it, okay? That's a very important thing you have to remember. You can write a poem about something and it doesn't change the fact that it happened or it didn't happen. But the second unhealthy extreme that I think that normally Christians, especially like real fundamentalist Christians are very guilty of in this, is because Job is an actual historical person, they read the book completely ignoring the fact that it is poetry. And it is a poem. So they read it like, okay, I'm just reading straight history. But if you do that, you almost certainly will leave that reading with a very distorted view of God. Unless, especially if you don't read it like really, 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 really closely, which we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to read it closely. Because part of the story, of course, it communicates that, it communicates that God tells Satan, hey, Satan, you can destroy Job's Life, and included in that means you can kill, he kills his whole family. Satan kills his whole family because of what God says he can do. Okay? So even, I mean, the problem with that is beyond anything is that Job is faithful and he does this. So that kind of goes against the justice of God, which we have to stand firm in. Hey, God's a just God. So we have to kind of sort that out a little bit. So let me try my best to do, explain to you what is happening. Job, of course, did not write the book of Job. His story, most likely, there's a couple different possibilities as to who wrote it. It may have been written um, as, as old as Moses, which would make it the oldest book in the, possibly the oldest book ever written in the whole Bible of everything recorded. Or it may have been, there's also a case that's made very well that it could have been written later during the Babylonian exile during that period. Um, so either way, Job would be a really great example for somebody who's suffering and who's going through a lot to, 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 to say, hey, let's explain what we're going through by pointing to this person who's gone through a lot, right? If you're, if you're in exile in Babylon, what do you have? You lost your temple, right? You lost your, uh, you lost your family, you lost your home, you've been taken away, right? If you're, if you're in Moses' day, same exact thing, right? They've been ta- they're, in, they're in bondage, they're in captivity, they're in Egypt, they, they move bricks all day, they're slaves, Okay? That's their life. So Job's story, right? The story of a man who had everything and then he lost everything. That was a way to tell their story. But it's an absolute roller coaster of emotions. And honestly, quite frankly, I think all of us have related to this book one way or another throughout our lives. But here's the, here's the devastating part that most people deal with this book is the book never tells us why we suffer. It never says, here's the reason. But another one of the reasons why people get this book so, I think they have such a hard time with this book is because they read this book and they do it asking the wrong questions. Actually, the book of Job is the story of a bunch of people who are asking the wrong questions. This is this, the book of Job. The bulk of this book is a dialogue between Job uh, and, his, and his friends. And they're trying to sort out what Job could have done to make God do this to him. Could have made, to, to make, that would make him deserve so much pain. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the dialogue. I'm going to spend a little bit on it. But one thing that is very clear from this dialogue is this. Everybody who tries to understand suffering ends up in the same place. They end up confused. 
And everybody who claims that they do understand suffering ends up in the same place. They have a hollow answer that doesn't actually help anybody, and it doesn't solve anything. So, a.k.a. they are wrong. They end up wrong. So let's try our best to cliff notes through this um, as best as we can. It's a very bizarre book, but the book starts with Job. It says Job has everything. The guy has it all. He's very wealthy. The Bible says he's blameless and he's upright before God. He has 10 children, seven sons, three daughters. He, he's doing really, really good, right? And in the story, there's a, uh, what, a council meeting uh, be, uh, that's taking place. And in this meeting, there's a conversation between God and somebody in, this, in the council meeting in the story called the Satan. It's actually written as a title. It's not just Satan, it's the Satan, which means the accuser or the one who is against or who is opposed. So this person is opposed to Job or he's opposed to God and what God is doing, right? And the Satan basically essentially says to God, he's like, hey, Job has everything. And that is the only reason why he's still being faithful to you. And you have to notice this. Again, I gave you these Bibles so you can look it up yourself. Job's right before Psalms in the Bible, so pretty much in the center. In chapter 1, verse 11, okay, Satan, you have to catch this, otherwise you're going to miss almost the whole sermon. Satan says to God, he says, God, turn your hand against all that he has, and he'll fall. He will not love you anymore if you just take away all that you've given him. But catch this, okay? Satan says, God, hurt Job. God, he sees Job's point but he doesn't hurt Job. All God does is he steps back. He removes himself from the situation, and he, but he refuses to actually lay a hand on Job. See, God's character, even in this poem, it refuses to allow him to strike his own hand against a faithful servant. Someone who is blameless. And so in this dialogue between God and the Satan, God basically says, you can test Job, but you cannot kill him. Now let's read what happens to Job. We're going to read this, and then we're going to just dive in like crazy. This is uh, Job 1. We're going to read from 13 to 22. It says this, Now there was a day when his sons, Job's sons and daughters, were eating, and they were drinking wine. In their, oldest daughters, or in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and they took them and they struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone... Have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made raids on the camels. And they took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now watch this. Then Job arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And you know what worship song he sang? 
He said, naked I, come in, I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now note that very last sentence. It says, Job did not charge God with wrong. So Job, who had everything, loses everything. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we are about to dive into something very, very big. Something very loaded and very complicated and very complex. And Lord, right now, I just pray for grace to fill this room, Father God. But Lord, Father God, even beyond that, Lord, let people be touched today when they're struggling in their own lives with why things happen to them that they do not understand, God. Lord, we all suffer in our own ways and we don't ever want to downplay what other people have experienced, Father God. But may we be people of empathy today, Father God. May we leave this place wanting to love people more, wanting to meet people right where they are more, wanting to put our, just realizing that our, hand, our lives are in your hands and trusting you more than we ever did before, God. We love you, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Okay. So... Quick story, for the last couple of years in our house, in our, our family, it's been, we've been seeing a lot of mice in our house. I know, my, I mean, I've, mice are just, we, actually, we had them in Brooklyn too, it was awful. And our house has been, you all know, our house has been under a lot of construction, uh, and especially this year. This year in the summer, we took our, we removed our furnace. We wanted to move our furnace from one room to a different room so that we could have a really big open space in, that, in a back room. We're really excited about it. Um, so we removed this furnace, but this is just how things go for us a lot, and it's how things go in maybe Detroit a lot. So this, this people who came and they know what they're doing, and they removed the furnace. They removed it this summer, but they did not re- put they didn't put it in the new place. So they just left it in the old place. So we have these gaping holes. And of course, we have different holes uh, throughout the walls. Uh, for, so, and we've had it for a while. So like last year, when mice would come in, right, we would get them with mouse traps. Like that's how you would have to catch them, right? But this year, it's been different, right? Because the furnace people, and I can say this to you now, I wouldn't tell you this story if it weren't this way. We do have a furnace now. We do have heat in our house. The, the heat blows out the vents and it's awesome, right? But for a while, we didn't. And quite honestly, it was really cold. It was really, really cold, and, and it was kind of beyond our control because this, we don't know what we're doing. I don't know how to, like, run gas lines and move furnaces and all that stuff, run HVAC. The people that did, were, they disappeared. They're gone. And they're, so we had this time where we were really, really cold, and it, 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 we, we woke up every morning, and we were really cold, and we were really miserable, and we were always late getting the kids to school. It was just kind of, it was just kind of stinks. You know, we, it's hard to get out of bed when you're cold. It just is, Right? And we knew it was really, really bad when we began finding mice that had frozen to death in our living room or in our dining room and in our kitchen. Just, they're just, they're frozen to death. It's like, that's easier than setting traps though. So it made, it made the, the, the battle this year was a little bit easier. We just showed up and they were done. It was awesome. Guys, it was more disgusting than it sounds. It really was. And I share that with you because I want to explain something to you. We were cold. Every day, it gets closer and closer and closer to winter. And, you know, and, and, and the harder, that, the closer it is to winter, the colder it gets, the harder it became to get out of bed. It just genuinely did. I didn't want to get up. And so we were late getting the kids to school every single day. And so for those of you who know me know, I try, like, there's certain people I'll share that stuff with like, while it's happening, but I try to kind of just wear a smile and kind of be like, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, you know? Like, like God, you're, you're, you're in control. You're on the throne. I love you so much. I try not to make a big deal about how crappy the situation is. 
But you can only keep that mindset that says, oh, I'm joyful, right? I got the joy of the Lord as my strength. God is on the throne. You can only keep that for so long before you start to get angry because things are not changing. And before long, quite frankly, people start looking at you like, dude, you got four kids. What are you doing to your family? You guys are freezing. You got to do something. You cannot just keep living like that. What's going on? As if like there's just something that I could just miraculously do to move the furnace and put it in and have it be, you know. No, I I can't. It's beyond my control. It was beyond my control. And sometimes in life there are just things that are beyond your control. They're beyond reasoning. They're not in line with that perfect life that you would plan for yourself. And what do you do when things do not go the way that you want them to go? See, for Job, if you read this entire book, you see that even though Job at the very beginning, he's like, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, he seems to be handling it well at first. He doesn't blame God at first. He still praises God. He still wears that smile. He's still like, God, you're on the throne. Super excited about all this horrible stuff happening. Reality wears him down. And eventually it crushes him. And he gets very, very, very mad at God. Very mad at God. Now, another thing that makes the book of Job so hard to study, so complicated, is that throughout the book, okay, the, the dialogue, the whole thing is a human dialogue between people. It's very poetic. It's a couple different people saying these different things about God, about Job. And the problem with this book is some of the things that they say are theologically sound. And then other things that they say are theologically unsound, which is very, very complicated when you sort through it. Like, because what is it? It's like people trying to explain it. Like, hey, Job, why'd you, what'd you do to cause this? Oh, you must have done this. Or, you know, oh, God must be doing this to you. Some things are unsound. It's a, it's a, the entire dialogue, again, it's the wrong questions. It's, Job, what did you do to make God cause you to do this? And the reason, and again, this is so foundational and this is so important, and you cannot miss this, and you might get really mad about this. But the reason why Job begins by responding in a way that seems to still be giving glory to God, and he gradually gets worse and worse and worse, is because Job is basing his theology of God on something that is not sound. It's not true. It's inaccurate. We read it a minute ago. And you you may have recognized what we read, especially if you grew up in church singing the praise and worship song that says it. Again, this next thing I say may upset some of you if you're you're in that class. But when I first got here, when Don and I first got to this church, I put this song on the do not playlist. I told Emily, you can't play it. And here's why. Job says this in 121. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This sounds great. This sounds holy. This is false. It's not true. Period. It is not true. When I first began in ministry, I remember this. I don't know why I remember this so well. So vivid. I remember I was an intern at a, at a church, a larger church, and I had the opportunity to sit in on a conversation between a worship pastor and a senior pastor. And it, it was an opportunity. It was an honor to do because when you, when you can learn from people who are doing it, who are further along than you are, you hone in on that. So I paid attention. And this worship pastor, he's talking to this pastor, and what he was talking about was he was talking about the dangers of leading churches in worship songs about God 
in which we unknowingly are confessing something dangerously unsound about God. And he used the example that across the world, we have millions of ch- we have churches, millions of people every single week throwing their hands in the air with reckless abandonment to God, crying out, he gives and he takes away. It shocked me to hear this because I have, with reckless abandonment, thrown my arms in the air, but like he gives and he takes away. Many, many, many times. But it caused me to really think about it and it caused me to really study it. And I don't know why, but that conversation stuck with me, like to the degree that I can like remember that worship pastor's posture when he was saying, like, you know, pastors, worship pastors, like hipsters, they all have their little posture and all that. Like, I remember the moment, I remember the tone in his voice when he said this. It stuck with me. I can still hear it today. And you're probably saying in your mind, how could this not be true? This is in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to show you how not only is it untrue, but it is also dangerous. And that's not also, I gotta say this, this is not to knock the artist that wrote it. Originally, Job wrote it. Job said, Job worshiped, and then this is my worship song. He gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Don and I are actually really good friends with somebody in the band that made that song really, really famous. It's not a knock on that, okay? I believe that art gives you room to wrestle with things that you're feeling. I think that's healthy, right? But there's a difference between art as an expression of how you feel and in claiming something as a truth in your life. And the problem with this verse is that people claim this as a truth in their life, and they did it way before the song came out. Again, I read Job, I believe it's poetic, I believe it's a poem, but for just one minute, why don't we read the whole thing like it's literal, okay? Because either way, it tells you the same story, if you, if you really, really read it closely. Read it literally, right? Satan goes to God, he says, God, you should hurt Job. See if Job still serves you. You gave him everything, now take it all away. God does not do it. God refuses. In the story, God merely tells Satan, Satan, you can test Job, you can put him to the test, but God himself is not doing it. God gave. God is not the one who is taking away. Of course, Job does not know that. Okay, Job doesn't know that, and he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to give glory to God. He's trying to praise God. But in doing so, he's crediting God with something that God doesn't deserve the credit for. And here's the problem with that. And we do this too. When I posted about Job on Facebook, in the first comment, some, one of the first comments was, I don't understand how God could do that to someone. So people, that's, that's how we think, right? But this is, what, this is the problem with this, this being the way that you believe about God, right? Job begins by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Awesome. But a little later down in the conversation, the more he builds off of this foundation that actually believes it's God who's doing this to him, the more angry at God he becomes. The more upset he gets. And the more angry at God he gets, the more distorted his view of God becomes. In chapter 10, uh, chapter 10, verse, I think it's four, he says, I'm going to say to God, God, Does it feel good that you would oppress me? He calls God an oppressor. He later says this, this is 1014. This will blow your mind. He says, God, when I sin, you don't forgive me. You don't acquit me. You don't let me off the hook. You hold it against me. So building off of the foundation that says God's causing this, God's causing evil against Job, Job has completely questioned God's character to the point that he's proclaiming, God, you won't even forgive me of my sins. After that, Job 10, 15, this is the the kicker, man. This blew my mind. 
Job 10.15 says, in Job 10.15, what he does is he likens God, he, Job likens God to a lion, okay? A lion who's about to devour him. God, hunting down Job as if God were a lion looking for someone to devour. But what does 1 Peter 5.8 say? It says, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? The adversary, the devil, the Satan, the same one who we know is at work in the life of Job in this moment. So Job is attributing the work of an evil one to the hand of a great God. And it is unraveling everything that he believes about God. Listen, no matter how you read this, this book, no matter what genre you put it in, the first and most important thing you have to see is it is not God who is causing evil to Job. Foundation is everything. What you build off of is everything. If we live our lives thinking that the God of the Bible, who's clearly spoken of as the one, the God who was, who is, and who is forevermore, will be the one who is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, the today, and forever. And if you believe that his character just sways with the wind, that automatically it makes all those things untrue. If you believe he randomly just decides that he can do horrible things to people, and then before long, you're not going to want to serve that God. Who would? In our ever-changing world, the one constant that we all have is God. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that God is just. Those are two things that God cannot, he can't not be those things. He has to be love, he has to be just, according to the Bible. The word immutable, right? It's one of the attributes of God, right? It means that God is unchanging in his character, in his will, and his covenant promises. And when something comes up in life that causes us to question the love of God, we may even read it in here. But we need to be slow to just accept it blindly until we can figure out what's going on beneath the layers that maybe we just don't understand. So Job's friends, okay, they hear about what happened to Job. And at first, they they actually do something really, really awesome, something we can all learn from. They come and they sit with him. For, three, for seven days. They sit for seven days. They don't say anything. They just empathize. They're just there. They don't say a word. They just sit with him. And sometimes when people are broken, they're hurting, they're lost, they're lonely, they're depressed, whatever it may be, all they need is someone to show up in their lives. That's what they need. Showing up is going to go a lot further than trying to sort it all out for people. Especially when it's something you're not capable of sorting out. The word compassion, it's one of our core values. The word compassion uh, in, in the Latin, which is where it comes from, it literally means to co-suffer. It means to suffer with. So when you choose to live a life of compassion, which we believe here that God has called all of us to live a life of compassion, it means that we're willing to suffer with people who are suffering. And that's what Job's friends did for him at first. So whether you get it or not, it doesn't matter. You suffer with them. But one of the biggest takeaways we need to understand is we don't always get it. And we can still suffer with. It's not about advice. The moment that Job's friends started getting into the advice business, the entire thing fell apart. It crumbled. They made God angry. 
and it becomes a bigger mess. So as the story progresses, his friends begin to try and find a reason for his suffering. And in doing so, they begin to try to figure out, God, or Job, what did you do that would make God so mad at you? So they're feeding this in him. What did you do? Right? Because in that day, wisdom literature, it all said, well, if you do this, then this happens. If you do this, then this happens. So what did you do, Job, to deserve this? And they continue back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, Job, he gets so mad, he calls them miserable comforters. He's like, you guys are horrible, dude. Like, awful. But it continues on and on and on and on. And Job, he says some terrible things about God that paint a picture of a man who's obviously broken, he's obviously lost, he's hurting, he's confused. But again, Job believes that God is doing all this to him. Finally, Job gets to a point where he throws his hands in the air. He's like, God, dude, you're going to have to come down here and explain it yourself. I I can't figure this out. Come explain yourself right now. And this is what the writer says happens next. God does come. This is amazing. God does come. ESV translation says it like this. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The whirlwind is the word, uh, it's pronounced sa'ara. You know what it means? It means storm. Storm. Out of the storm. Don't miss this. Because God shows up in all sorts of ways throughout the Bible to all sorts of different people. But if Job, of all people, in the middle of his biggest storm he had faced in his entire life, the Bible says that God showed up in the storm. God showed up in the storm. But instead of answering Job's questions, because Job had a lot of questions for God, instead he just starts asking Job a bunch of questions. God, he basically, he takes Job on this journey, this amazing journey, through the wonders of creation. And one of the first things that God says is, he says, he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? See, there was a foundation that had to be laid, and you have no idea what happened there because you were not there when it was being laid. Or maybe tell me this, Job, who determines the measurements of it all? Who's in those details? Surely you know, Job. That's what he says. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Now, guys, God is not trying to insult Job. He's trying to show him something very important. He's trying to show him that, Job, even on your best day, when you've learned more than you've ever known before about God and more than you've ever known about the universe, you still only understand a fraction of a percent of all that there is to understand. The details that go into everyday life that we take for granted, God says, I'm in that. I'm in those details. I'm in those things. That storm that you're walking through, God didn't cause it, but he's in it with you. It's the perfect example is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He, he didn't put him in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar did, but God was in there with him, wasn't he? He was in there. He's the, the potter who holds the clay in his hands, as Jeremiah says. And just like that, he's holding you, even when you do not understand let me give you an example of this to try to make some sense of it. I hope, I hope this helps to make sense of kind of what, everything we just talked through. And then I'm going to give you some really cool thoughts after that. So for adults, you, me, all of, most of us in this room, right? We understand things like death. At least to the degree that we know, hey, we're not going to get to see that person again. At least on this earth, we're not going to have another conversation with them. They've moved on into eternity. Their life on this earth, their time is over. But it's very difficult to communicate 
something like that to a child. Very different how you have to communicate. You have to communicate things differently to a little child than you would to an adult. Well, it's the same way with God. He knows that we can't even comprehend even a fraction of all that's going on. So he has to communicate with us in a way that we may not be getting all the details, but he gives us enough to know, hey, you know what? You're meant to continue on in this journey. You're meant to keep moving. You're meant to go a little bit further. I still have a plan for your life. If there's something that can be done with this, that's going to be better for our world, whatever it might be. Even when we can't comprehend the what, um, he's, he's, he's still there. He's like, you know, I know you don't get it. You don't get the why. You don't get the why. But you know what? I will show you that there is a path forward. See, this became very, 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 very real to us a couple weeks ago, to Don and I. See, our, our kids go to a school and that, that begins children at a very young age with play-based learning. So, like, they have tea time every single day. It's awesome. Like, they, it's so, it's like you'd see in the movie, like, those awesome movies about, like, why, don't, why aren't our schools like this anymore? This is their school. They, they cut vegetables. When they're, like, three years old, they're cutting vegetables and making soup. It's amazing. They play-based learning, fairy tales. So, the teacher's very, very involved, okay, in their lives. They learn through stories. So, it's, teachers are a huge part of their world. And for those of you who know Don and I's story, especially when we first moved to Detroit, our lives were chaos. Chaos. And instead of showing you a picture of the chaos, which I have done before and you know that I have plenty of them, I wanted to show you a picture of my kids just playing at school. See, so many crazy things happened to us. And the kids were there for those things happening, for almost all of them. And this school has been an absolute haven in the midst of some difficult times like that. And both Brooklyn and Fiona, they had the same pre-K teacher for two years. Uh, they had her for two years each. Her name was Miss Kreiderman. And she's their very first teacher, and she was so good at what she did. And she, she's so good at, like, she's so good to the kids, and she'd always give them this place of refuge and a place of peace, even in the middle of some of those storms that our family was walking through. But last year, Fiona was still in her class, and she got very sick, very sick. And she had to, she had to take a, an extended leave of absence. She was gone for a very long time, and every day, Fiona would come home in tears, and she would say, I miss Ms. Kreiderman. I miss Miss Kreiderman. Where is she? When's she coming back? When's she coming back? When's she coming back? And then finally, they sent out an email that said she's not going to be able to come back. Fiona was just crushed, absolutely devastated. Then about two, I guess it'd be like three, four weeks now, we got an email that she passed away. She, she died. And it was very, very difficult to explain that to our kids. Especially these two that she—they're being molded by her. She was she was such a part of their lives. Now the school is very careful with how they communicate with such small kids. Of course they should be, but they helped us with resources for how we can communicate this with our children. So they they actually gave us these stories that are told in the form of an allegory that would explain death in a, a way that they would understand. And then it would open us up to a conversation to actually explain what had really happened. It was still difficult, but it made it easier. Does that make sense? Now, two days later at that school, we had what's called the lantern walk. This is 
Fiona, they do it every year. Uh, the kids in kindergarten and in pre-K, they make these lanterns at school, and then they light them. It's in the evening one night, and then they, they light these lanterns that they walk, and they walk from the school across the street to this big field, and they walk around the field, and then they all end up around this big campfire where everyone is singing with an acoustic guitar playing, and they're singing campfire songs. We all just surround it. We all sing together. It actually fell on my birthday, and one of the songs they sang that day was Happy Birthday, and they sang it to me. It was awesome. I was so blessed by it. And please know, our kids do not go to a Christian school. It's a very good school, but it's not, like, especially Christian. But we ended that whole night, two days after Miss Kreiderman died, by everyone together singing the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And nobody said anything directly relating to her. But for me, there was just something about a bunch of four or five, six-year-old kids who had just lost their teacher. For many of them, it was their first experience with any sort of loss like that. At that level, all just gathering together and singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. Guys, God does not cause it. But he is holding you through it so tightly. And he will never, ever let you go. We want reasons why things happen. We're people who want answers, but pain very rarely gives us an answer. Because life is not about answers. It's about trusting that God has the world in his hands. And when his hand is on it, that thing can turn around at any time. And it's also about realizing that we actually have a role in that master plan. That he's molding us and shaping us for something. And our lives and what we're going to be able to do is being shaped by our experiences. And when you get that mindset in your, in your head and you can wrap your brain around it, the question shifts. It stops being why and it becomes, okay, so what's next? What is this developing in me that will make me a better leader? That will make me a better follower of Jesus? That will make me a better dad? That will make me a better pastor? What can be birthed out of what has died? Think about this verse in Ecclesiastes. 7-2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The message version says it like this. It says, you learn more at a funeral than you do at a feast. But when you go to a funeral, what happens? We connect with our humanity, and we empathize with someone else's. And we leave grateful that we still have days ahead of us. This verse reminds us we're all going to die. And when we go into a house of mourning, when we go into a funeral, that will cause it to lay that reality on our heart. But it's not meant to be depressing. It is meant to be inspiring. Because if you never slow down to realize the brevity of it all, you're going to miss the whole thing. But when someone passes away, as difficult as it is, and for me, when I go to a funeral, I leave that place wanting to be a better husband. I, want, I leave that place wanting to be more intentional with the time I have left before my kids graduate from high school and are just basically gone. There has to be things sometimes in life that recenter us, 
then we can build off of those things. Guys, I believe even the placement of the book of Job in where it lands in the Bible speaks to this. See, Job is placed in the wisdom literature, okay? But and most scholars actually believe that Job is a response to wisdom literature of that day that consistently would tell you, if you do this, then this will happen, because that's what it all said, right? But Job is what happens when you do this, right? You do the right thing. You follow the 12 steps for a successful life. You behave the way you're supposed to behave, and your world still falls apart. The wisdom in the book of Job tells us that life does not always go the way that you want it to, even when you do everything that you're called to do. But notice this, okay? Job is the first book of the wisdom literature. Okay? Then from there, you have Psalms, which is more than anything a book of prayers. Then you have Proverbs, which is, if I do this, then, I do th- then this happens. If you do this, then this happens. Then you get to Ecclesiastes, which really, to be honest, is about doubt. It's about wrestling. It's about things that we don't understand. And then we end on Son of Songs, which is about love. Love. So the wisdom literature section of the Bible, it builds from suffering It wrestles with the question of why, the question of doubt, and then it ends on love, where we all are trying to go, where we're all trying to land, right? The one thing we should be building toward, foundation is everything. Now watch this. Solomon says this. Right after he says it's better to go to a funeral than a banquet, he goes on to say, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. As in, okay, wisdom comes out of suffering. You, get, you, you can build a life by the way that you suffer. A, and a house full of suffering has a lot of wisdom. Now, Proverbs 24, 3, the same guy says, by wisdom, we build our houses. So Solomon, who's, he most likely wrote Ecclesiastes. He definitely wrote this proverb. He's considered to be the wisest person who ever lived. He seems to be saying that there is a case to be made that a wise life is established by suffering. And he is not the only one to say it. There's a passage in 1 Peter that really speaks to this too. We did a whole series on this a couple years ago. It's called The Case for Bad Choices, if you ever want to go back and watch it. But 1 Peter uh, 5.10 says something we're going to get to in a second. But Understanding the context of the verse actually ties it to Job more than you could ever even imagine. See, remember, Job says that God, in, uh, in, 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 in Job, uh, it says that Job is like a lion, or God is like a lion who's looking for someone who can devour, right? Right? And, we, of course, we know it's Satan who's doing the damage because we know that 1 Peter 5, 8 says that it is the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But then 1 Peter says this. 1 Peter 5.8 says that. 1 Peter 5.9 says resist the devil. Resist the prowling lion. But then it says this. It says resist him knowing that the same suffering that you are experiencing, people all around the world are also experiencing. But do you know what that means? We read that famous verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, and we think that it's saying resist the devil because he's trying to get you to do these sinful things, right? He's trying to get you to stumble, look for a moment of weakness, and, he can, and you need to resist doing that, and you should resist that. If you have an opportunity to sin, please resist that opportunity. 
But read the passage in context. What it actually is saying is that the devil is out and he is trying to kill your faith by using your suffering. He is the father of all lies. And if when you suffer, he can convince you that it is God causing you that pain, you will lose the battle with evil. Because if God truly is opposing you and your life, then that would make God your enemy. And by default, you would lose your faith in God, or at least your faith in the character of God, and it becomes a very slippery slope after that. That's why it says, resist the devil, standing firm in your faith, that's what it says next, knowing that others around the world, just like you, are going through the exact same thing, because evil is out to destroy you, but it will not win if you resist it, and on the other side of it will be a new you that is capable of anything. 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Greek word for establish is the word the meliamo, and it means to lay the foundation. It's the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 1.10 when he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The same foundation that Job was not there for, was he? But God was. So in the same way that God created the beautiful earth that we come to know and love, we are made into who we are called to be for Jesus when our foundation is built off of persevering through times that we do not understand. When it is built through persevering through suffering. Something can come out of a person that has suffered that simply cannot be produced in any other way. That's why James, he says it like this. And, uh, he, he, says, um, he says, when we suffer, when you're persecuted, when it feels like everything's coming against you, what well, you count it all joy, okay? You count it joy not because of what you're going through, but because of what it will produce in you. In fact, He says this, and it's one of the first things, it's one of the things we look over. He says, because what it will produce in you is steadfastness, right? When your faith is tested, it gives you the strength to know I can keep going. I can keep doing this. See, we like to think when our faith gets tested, we're just automatically going to be able to withstand whatever it is that comes at us. But the reality is, is you got to build up to that. I think that's why a lot of Christians get really disappointed when they face opposition and then they fall. They stumble, they make a mistake, and then they beat themselves up because they think that they should be further along than they are right now. But the reality is, as James tells us, it is a process. We are not just born with the strength that it takes to overcome these things in our lives. And then James, in chapter 5, he actually says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purposes of the Lord and how he is steadfast and how he is merciful. It's like, Job was written so that we would have something to look back on to remind us, hey, you can do it. You can do it. You can keep going. You can make it a little further. God can still use you. Even when you think that you've blown every opportunity that he ever gave you, he can still use you. He can still do something in your life. God can redeem the broken things and he can give you beauty for ashes. Job himself, he says this in Job 14, And he says that he's in the middle of like a lament and he seems to feel like he's lost all hope and he's really, really upset. And the way it reads, it almost sounds like he's just like kind of like in your face, God. But he says this, he says, even, he says, there's hope for a tree. 
Some translations actually say there's even hope for a tree, as in like there's hope for a tree and there's not for me. But it says this, for there, there's hope for a tree, if it be cut down, it will sprout again. And that its shoots will not cease. And what Job does not realize as he's speaking this way, because he's speaking out against God at that moment, is that God, even the tree has hope. What he doesn't realize is this is literally what happened to him. He was cut down, but he will sprout again. Because beauty for ashes, it is not just this cheesy preacher line. It's a promise that God holds the world in his hands. And though it may not always feel like it, he is going to redeem the whole thing. Evil will not win the day, and death will not have the final word. No matter how much pain we may face in this earth and in this world, it'll never be as much as Jesus had to endure. Isaiah 53 says the thing, I just read this this week, and it blew my mind. It's about Jesus, and it's a prophecy. In the prophet Isaiah, in verse 8, he's prophesying about Jesus, and he says that by oppression and by judgment, Jesus was taken away. And then it says he was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off. His days were cut short in what seemed like his prime. When his ministry was growing and when people were gathering and he was reaching the most people, he was still so young, yet it was all taken from him in an instant. But yet in the end, Jesus did more for us and for the world in his death and resurrection than he ever did in his life and ministry. Because Jesus is the ultimate Job. Someone who, deserved to, someone who did not deserve to die, someone not deserving of death at all, not deserving to suffer, yet he did suffer. Someone whose foundation was suffering so that our glory could be infinitely greater. Somebody who faced momentary pain as awful as it was so that something much greater and much more amazing could take place later for us. He was an innocent man, just like Job. An innocent man, more innocent than Job, being weighed, bearing the weight of the sins of the world, something beyond our comprehension, so that he could do the miracle work of dying for us. And if that's the path that God chose to save humanity, then don't be surprised when God takes our broken pieces to write our greatest stories. In the end, God restored everything that Job had. In fact, he gave him twice as much as he ever had. The Bible says his latter days were greater than his beginning days. Again, he had 10 more children. And the book ends by saying that he died an old man who was full of days. Very, very, very well off. But here's the thing that we don't realize. See, if you read just the beginning of Job, and then you read just the ending of Job, you read about a guy who has a whole lot, and then all of a sudden he has even more. Twice as much as he had in the beginning. And most of us, we look at other people in other circumstances. And that's what we think. We think, oh, wow, they're successful. And we think it was like that. And we don't see the middle space, that whole thing in the middle, when every day's a battle. We don't see the doctor's reports. We don't see the bankruptcy. We don't see the arguments. We don't see the tears shed for children who won't even talk to them, whatever it may be. We don't see the uphill battle that they fought for 10 years to get out of debt to get to where they are now. 
set themselves up. And it's very easy to live our lives in this zone of thinking, woe is me. God is blessing everybody besides me. And my problems are bigger than everybody else's problems and nobody understands. And maybe nobody does understand. But you don't understand either. We don't see between the lines of our own lives, much less those of other people's. We don't see between these layers. And even when people do let us in, there's always something we don't see. But as Christians, we are called to co-suffer. I'm going to end with this real quick story, last example that I hopefully will encourage you before we leave. I mentioned earlier, thinking about this furnace, right? When, when, when you have a furnace going, it's cold, it was miserable. I did not want to get out of bed. I literally did not get out of bed. I, w- I let our kids be sometimes late for school for like two hours because I would not get up. It's so cold, right? And anyway, we were getting the kids to school one day and we were late and we had just done the tardy slip thing and um, Millie went to class and Brooklyn went to class and I was walking Fiona to class because she's a little bit early, younger and uh, her class was coming in from recess, okay? And so she missed recess and she's coming in with her class and she, as she's coming in, she walks up to the class and one of the boys in her class says, Fiona, you're late. Again, no, this kid had no idea what was going on right under the surface. He just says that, you're late. And without hesitation, the instant she heard that, the teacher interjected and she said, she is not late. She is on time. And Fiona just smiled like, wow, I'm on time. When you're going through something, And it's just not going the way that you thought that it would go. And the weight of it all, it slows you down. It doesn't take long to notice that you're not getting where you wanted to go as quickly as you thought that you would. What do we do in our minds? We start thinking things like, God, where are you? Are you there at all? Why haven't you showed up? Are you coming? You're late. But he's not late. He's there. And for those of you who are in this place today and you're in the middle of a storm and you're just asking God, when are you going to show up? Remember what happened to Job? Where did God show up? Right in the middle of the storm. And he's there with you too. Remember the steadfastness of Job and keep going. Keep going. Keep going.